Before we get to this episode of the Naffy More Right Rudder podcast, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Sporties. Shop Sporties.com for all of your pilot training and supply needs. And remember, Naffy members enjoy 20% off of select Sporties training products, and Sporties eFERC is free. So remember, shop Sporties at Sporties.com. Now, this episode of the Naffy More Right Rudder podcast is titled, So You Want to Start a Flight School? And it's actually a presentation we did at uh, last year's Air Venture Professional Development Program, and it was created and presented by a gentleman named Tim Poole. And Tim is, as he calls it, co-owner and chief everything officer of GT Aviation LLC. He's a commercial multi and single engine pilot with a IA authorization AMP mechanic. Uh, he also owns a flight school, and so he's kind of telling the story about how it all came to be, how he decided to uh, start a flight school, what it's like running a flight school, and everything in between. So um, before we get to that, if I can just encourage you to remember to subscribe and rate the podcast anywhere you happen to be listening to this. All that helps us uh, get the word out, and, and hopefully you're enjoying what we're doing here. So once again, without further ado, so you want to start a flight school? flight school so clearly everybody here woke up this morning bumped your head right and decided starting a flight school would be a, a, a particularly good idea uh, so welcome to the club uh, that's what we're going to go through today so GT Aviation is a flight school that my wife and I own and operate we're based out of Potomac Airfield just outside of Washington DC uh, if you're not familiar with the airport itself uh, you're probably familiar with the term circle of doom which is the 15 mile airspace around DC that is called the restricted or the flight restricted zone rather and uh, not everybody can fly in and out of there. So I like a challenge. We picked the most restricted airspace in the United States to start a flight school. So how do you go about doing that? I tell folks, if you're thinking about starting something like a formal flight school versus being just an independent CFI, working with people at your local airport, you want to start with some big questions, and then we're going to break these down, obviously, into the smaller questions, right? So. There's lots of small details that come with running any kind of business. It's no different with a flight school. So we want to break these things down as far as we can so that you're thinking about a lot of the right things. So the first is, of course, what's going to be the mission of your flight school? Are you going to be just you know, a general aviation flight school that takes anybody that walks through the door that wants to get a private, instrument rating, whatever? Or are you going to specialize? Are you going to be you know, a, a Cirrus Center? Are you going to be a bush flying school? Are you going to teach mountain courses? You know, that that's the type of thing you want to you want to you know work on and figure out who's going to be your target customer base a lot of that's also going to be driven by where you're going to physically locate the school which we'll talk about as well but who's your ideal target customer is it someone walking in you, you want to try to squeeze out any private pilot for you know 10 or 12 grand out the door or are you looking for a higher end client that wants to do private in something like an SR22 both types of schools exist right so what are you going to focus on what type of aircraft will I need? That's self-explanatory, but once you figure out some of these other questions, are you going to go look for some Skyhawks or Cherokees? Or are you going to be looking for newer equipment to put out on your flight line? What type of instructor staff will I need? Do I need someone who has mountain flying experience? Do I need someone who has off-airport or bush flying experience? Like the last presentation, do you want someone who is good with aerobatics, spins, you know, that type of stuff on your staff? And then, of course, one of the larger decisions you can make, especially in the current climate with flight schools, is you want to stay part 61, just a regular old flight school, quote-unquote, or do you want to go into part 141 as well, which is an accelerated flight training curriculum but requires FAA approval and comes with a bunch of other strings. We'll get into all of that as well. So I call those the big questions. So for us, you know, our origin story is I learned to fly at the same airport we're based at now at a flight school that's no longer there, and the experience was so bad, I woke up one day and said, you know what, I can't possibly do it any worse than that. 
So my wife and I talked about it. And we said, yeah, we'll do it. We'll go buy an airplane. We'll start a flight school. I'm actually not a flight instructor. I've been commercial, multi, 1,500 hours, all that stuff. I'm an ANPIA. We'll talk about maintenance here as part of this talk today as well. I'm not a flight instructor. I've never had the available bandwidth to sit down and actually you know, finish. I've started and stopped twice despite owning a flight school and get that finished for myself. So I hire folks to do the instruction for us. Our customers, anybody, we don't care. You know, aviation is a passion for us as a family. So you're coming in the door with your recreational pilot, someone who's looking to fly professionally. We've put a ton of people through to airlines, especially in a current climate. We've put people through to various military, uh, reserve, and active duty you know, slots as well. Um, we don't discriminate in terms of our customer base. We are both a Part 141 and a Part 61 flight school. We also are additionally VA approved, so folks can use their GI Bill benefits with us. And as you can see, our aircraft there, a bunch of Skyhawks. We've got an Aero Twin Comanche. We use a Redbird Sim as well. And I employ both full-time and part-time staff. We'll get into why that's important as well. Any questions so far? Everyone can hear me okay in the back? Good. Okay. So we are going to play a game as we go through the presentation this afternoon. Bob kind of alluded to it earlier. We're going to play Guess the Aircraft because it's going to get real loud again here in a few minutes. So as I mentioned before, this is the Circle of Doom. So that's Washington, D.C. right there in the middle. It's DCA Airport. Um, and we are this guy right here. So to fly in and out of this airspace, you actually have to be fingerprinted and go through a background check in order to be cleared and then issued a PIN number so you can file flight plans in and out. Every single one of our students has to go through this process. Even if you're not a student and you just want to rent, you have to go through this process. Sounds kind of onerous, right? Like, who would want to do that? Thankfully, over time, the government has really sort of necked that process down and streamlined it as much as possible. So we can actually do the fingerprinting on site now. You don't have to go into uh, a federal building, so on and so forth. So we've done what we can to sort of overcome the inherent challenges of working in an airspace like this. On the flip side of that, we use it to our advantage. VKX, Potomac Airfield, 2,600 feet long by 60 feet wide. It's in a shallow valley surrounded by trees. So lots of sporty landings, lots of crosswind, lots of you know, mid-Atlantic weather. Uh, and then, of course, with this airspace, we're talking to ATC on every flight. Right? So our graduates, by the time they're done, they've got superior stick and rudder skills. They have absolutely phenomenal radio skills. They're not afraid to start using their license immediately and go wherever it is they want to go. All right, so I talked about breaking the big questions down into the little details. What will I teach? Again, we've, we've talked about that. I won't go into that any further. But aircraft. The aircraft market, in case you haven't noticed, has kind of lost its mind right now, right? So if you're looking for a used Skyhawk, used Cherokee, you know, anything that's you know, 40 to 50 years old, you know, prices have gone up 40 to 50% or more. Uh, just here in the last few years. So you really have to you know, pay attention and figure out what it is you want to use in your school and how you're going to go about acquiring those aircraft. Whether you're going to buy, purchase, lease back, we'll get into all that stuff. Um, you know, you're going to have to worry about staff. Who's going, to, who's going to teach for you? If you're not a flight instructor yourself, obviously you're going to need folks that you can bring on board to handle those duties for you. How are you going to handle maintenance? Logistical items, things like, I don't know, do you need to, really, do you need to start with an office? to become a flight school. We'll get into that. Uh, insurance, we're definitely going to talk about insurance stuff. Location, I showed you, you know, the world's worst nightmare for running a flight school back here. But are you, you know, are you in the mid-Atlantic region versus the dry desert of Arizona, you know, where you don't have the types of weather patterns we have, you know, here outside of D.C.? Uh, are you going to be in the mountains? Are you going to be down, you know, towards the Caribbean? There's a lot of factors that, that go into that stuff. Well, you need other staff. By other staff, do you need front office staff? You know, who's, who's meeting your customers as they come in through your front door? Um, do you need, you know, other maintenance support? Uh, we do most of our maintenance stuff in-house, for example, but there are some things we still farm out to, to repair stations for things we can't do ourselves. You know, are you going to do the whole 141 or VA route? We'll talk about that. And, of course, marketing. Uh, marketing, you know, that's, like, there are people that that's, they spend their entire life doing marketing, right? They're experts at that. There are things you can definitely do yourself to figure out. Uh, social media is fantastic. You can publish stuff you know, pretty much anywhere at very little cost all across social media. We, uh, today, you'll see some numbers later regarding like our enrollment numbers and gradu graduations and stuff like that. We have never had a formal marketing campaign at GT. We've never found a need for it. And frankly, at our staffing levels, 
if I did advertise, like we couldn't handle the influx, you know, so we wanted, we didn't want to dilute the customer experience for our existing customers. And then of course, slam our existing staff on top of that um, by running additional marketing campaigns, which I know kind of sounds backwards. You want to grow you know, your business larger, but we've realized kind of what our limitations are in our current configuration. And so that's kind of where we're hovering for the moment. And then of course, money. We're definitely going to talk about money. So what will I teach? You know, we're going to do private through what? You know, you used to be able to do ATP multi, you know, just as a flight school before they changed the requirements a few years back. Um, we pushed a bunch of ATP multi folks through right before that deadline. Are you going to specialize in, specialize in light sport? Uh, there is a, a flight school owner, Helen Woods. Some of you probably know the name. She runs an excellent uh, LSA school at Bay Bridge Airport there in Maryland. She and I used to give this presentation together. Um, if you're a light sport person, you're ever in the Mid-Atlantic, definitely check them out. Are you going to do tailwheel stuff? Are you going to do acro only? You know, again, what are you going to specialize in and, uh, and how will you approach you know, delivering that product? You know, syllabi, are you going to write your own? You know, you got to go through that drill, right, as a, as a CFI candidate. Um, are you going to use something that's pre-published? King, Jeppesen, Gleam, ASA, you know, any of the other products that are out there. You have a lot of choices to make. So there's a lot of research that goes into this. So aircraft, are you going to own, right? I mentioned earlier, it's a seller's market right now. You know, Skyhawk prices in particular are nuts. Same with Cherokees. Um, or, or are you going to do leasebacks? We have a mix. We have 10 aircraft in our fleet. I'm actually picking up another one next week. It's another leaseback. It's a 50-50 mix. We own five of those aircraft. The others are a combination of, uh, we got one local leaseback and then uh, a variety of, of corporate leaseback aircraft as well. There are organizations out there like Christensen Aviation out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've been working with them for 10 years at this point. Um, the guy's got hundreds of Skyhawks all over the country, you know, in flight schools, uh, you know, with these lease structures. So if you're not in a position to where you can outlay, you know, the capital up front to go purchase uh, aircraft yourself, you want to look for vendors like them that can lease you aircraft and, and get them out on your line earning money for you. And do you need a simulator? We didn't have a simulator when we first opened. That's something we grew into and then ultimately added as part of our offerings for our training. So that's, we've got a Redbird LD. It's an advanced aviation training device. It's 141 approved. We can use it in all of our curriculums where that experience is allowed, of course. Uh, it's a great addition to what we can offer there uh, at the school. Instructors. So we've got a mix of full-time and part-time. The DC area is highly fluid. There's a lot of turnover just in terms of people, right? You've got a lot of government employees, a lot of contractors, a lot of military. You know, people come and go for us. So most, we've got 16 flight instructors on staff at, at this point. Two of them are full-time. The rest are all part-time for the reasons I just mentioned. So there's a constant, you know, influx and outflux of instructor staff. That's something that you get used to, especially in the current hiring environment at the airlines, right? So we grow our own CFIs as well. We've, we've got a number of them that have gone from zero time coming in the door, gone all the way through, you know, multi-engine instructor. And then as soon as they get to their 15 hours, their apps are in, right? And, and they get a slot and they move on to the airline. We actually don't have a problem with that. We, we know that GT is not going to be a career destination for them. We are certainly a stepping stone. But as long as they are a, a good employee and they are actually, you know, providing the, the instruction to our standards, we're going to support them in their, you know, in their efforts to move on to the next stage of their career. So we've done that with a number of folks. Uh, are you going to, you know, what, how are you going to pay them? So that answer is going to depend highly on where you are located geographically in the U.S., right? So um, our rates in the Mid-Atlantic are not the same rates that are in the South, that are not the same rates out in the Southwest or even the Pacific Northwest. So you're going to want to do some research on other schools in the area, other services in the area, and figure out what you can do to pay your people competitively, uh, not only to keep them, but to make sure that you are getting you know, quality employees uh, that deliver the product that you're trying to deliver. Uh, so we, will they be employees or will they be subcontractors? We have no employees in our school. They're all 1099 subcontractors. We did that for a variety of reasons, which is another talk that's not, that we don't have time for today. But that's the decision that we made, right? So that works for us. Uh, liability insurance, of course, we carry liability insurance on, on everyone that works you know, for us, the facility itself, all of our maintenance activity, those type of things. And then uh, the one thing I will go into with regards to employees versus subs is workman's compensation insurance. So 
there's a difference between the IRS definition of, a, of an employee, a W-2 employee, versus a 1099 contractor, and then the Department of Labor's definition of an employee versus a 1099 subcontractor. So even though we're paying them you know, for tax purposes on a 1099, the Department of Labor says, because we're directing everything that they do, we say you use this syllabus, you teach this way, you're using our equipment, that meets the Department of Labor definition of an employee. Therefore, we're required to carry workman's compensation insurance on them. So it's little nuances like that that you have to learn you know, as a business owner to make sure you don't leave yourself open uh, you know, to liability. All right, any questions so far? I know we're kind of moving quickly here. All right, maintenance. So I mentioned I'm an AMPIA. Uh, at, at one point during the sort of life cycle of our company here, I did get to the point where I was working on my CFI, but we were having more problems hiring maintenance personnel than CFIs. So I made a decision to become an A&P so I could help out in-house with our own maintenance. Uh, so do you want to outsource your maintenance? You know, there's plenty of, of shops out there, but you'll quickly realize as, you know, as, a, as a business owner, paying commercial rates for something like maintenance on a fleet, it may not be that bad for one or two aircraft, but once you get up to four or five, six or more aircraft, paying commercial rates versus you know, the rates you would pay in-house by you know, employing your own people drastically different, right? So if you can control those expenses, keep those costs in-house, and then also you're controlling the quality of your own maintenance, that can be a huge benefit. So we do, we, when we started our flight school, it was, it was a one aircraft, one part-time CFI operation, literally bare bones in a tiny 10 by 12 room. That's how we started. We didn't have our own maintenance staff at the time. We had a Diamond DA-20, and we wanted to be completely different from that other previous school that I mentioned, you know, uh, that I learned to fly at. And uh, we sent the aircraft out to a Diamond Service Center for its first 100-hour inspection, right, after we bought it. I got a 72-item squawk list, you know, back from that service center on an aircraft that might have, you know, 100 moving parts on it in the airframe. And we decided there's no way we were going to be able to do that. So we, we made that decision to, to bring it all in-house and work from there. So you're going to need staff, right? You're going to need A&P mechanics. You're probably going to need at least one IA on staff. Um, our planes fly enough. Our Skyhawks in particular, we have them on what are called progressive inspection programs. You have to have an IA on staff to be able to sign those off. So those things give you advantages. You're going to be buying stuff like tools. You're going to need inventory. I've got practically anything we need to fix anything short of airframe damage sitting on the shelf in the back in case it dies, right? We've got 10 aircraft on the line. Seven of those are Skyhawks. If the starter dies, if the battery dies, somebody you know, flat spots a tire on their way in because it's a short field, whatever it is, we can take that plane over and knock out those repairs you know, pretty quickly and get the plane back online. You're going to need some kind of workspace. We started maintenance out of my buddy Matt's truck in a pop-up tent, right? So we were doing inspections literally under a 10 by, under a 10, by 10 pop-up. That's all we had available to us. Eventually moved into a T-hanger. We were doing stuff there. We had so many tools, we couldn't get an aircraft in the T-hanger, you know, with all the tools. And now we're working out of a 55 by 60 shop where we can get multiple aircraft in at the same time. So it's just a, a you know, steady you know, growth in terms of what our capabilities are um, and then, of course, what we're bringing to the table. And then maintenance also requires ongoing training, right? So there's, there's, there's continuing education in the maintenance world just like there is with the flight instruction world. All right, logistical items. So do you need an office space to start if you're going to start a flight school? And that's what everybody thinks of when they think business, right? You've got a, you've got a physical location, brick and mortar. You've got an office. Maybe a receptionist there to meet people when they come in, someone to answer the phones. You don't absolutely need that unless you have to have it, right? You can start a flight school operation, a Part 61 operation, out of the trunk of your car. You can use a lockbox on the plane itself. You, know, you don't have to expend you know, a bunch of money up front for the sake of appearances versus actual operational need. For scheduling, you can go old school. There's still folks out there using paper calendars. A lot of folks uh, in different parts of the community still using things like Google Docs, Office 365, stuff like that. Or you can use an online scheduling system. We're large enough that we, we switched to Flight Schedule Pro about eight years ago and never looked back. It handles all of the aircraft scheduling for us, has built-in maintenance tracking for us. So every time a flight is dispatched and checked back in, all that back-end stuff calculates when the next inspection is due, when the next AD is due. I get emails every day on the status of the fleet, right? So I know if 497 is coming up on the OP3 inspection, 
we've got eight hours left. I can look at the schedule and figure out, okay, that'll make it through Wednesday. We better down it on Thursday so we can get that, we can get that uh, inspection taken care of. It also gives our customers the maximum amount of flexibility. They can log on from any device anywhere. If that plane's available and their instructor's available, they can make that reservation without having to interact you know, with someone from our GT staff. Um, do you need tie-down or hangar space? Again, it's going to be you know, airport dependent and dependent upon your needs. Uh, we don't hangar any of the flight school aircraft. They're all on tie-downs outside, exposed to the elements. Then again, they're all metal airplanes. You know, if you're using a you know, Cetabria or a Super Decathlon or something like that, that's going to need something over it, you need to take that into consideration. Also, being as close as we are to Washington, D.C., hangar space is at an absolute premium, so the pricing there is, is just nuts. So we're, we've made a, a conscious choice to avoid that, uh, with the exception of our maintenance hangar facility. Um, everything stays outside. Are you going to need policies? So for me, this was a big deal going into it. You know, we were a one aircraft, one part-time CFI flight school, but I had a policy manual that we adopted from another school because I wanted standardization from the get-go. So we've got a weather policy. You can fly in these conditions. You cannot fly in these conditions, right? That way that eliminates the gray areas. So if a customer shows up at the airport and they scrub, but the next guy behind them flying from our same school with a different flight instructor walks out to the airplane and they go flying, they're going to look at you like, what gives? Why did they scrub and how come, you know, or why, why can they go fly but we had to scrub? So we have weather policies, wind policies, you know, things about solo, where they can solo to, how much fuel they have to carry by the time they get back, all of that type of stuff, just to essentially, again, provide as much standardization as possible to keep everybody on the same page. It's good for the customers. It's fantastic for the staff, right? It takes all, not all, but it takes most of the guesswork out of how they deliver your flight training service and product. And then fuel. You know, all of our fleet uses 100 low lead. Uh, there are aircraft out there, there are airports that do provide MOGAS if you have that option available to you. And then you're going to look at things like wet rates versus dry rates. You know, most folks out there are operating under a wet rate, uh, you know, policy or, or procedure. Our airport, actually, you buy all the fuel from the airport, so everything that we do is a dry rate un unless it's the VA because they require wet rates for reimbursement. Any questions so far? Yes. What Great question. So the question was, to what extent do you have your CFIs participate in the creating or changing of those policies? I work all of that through our chief flight instructor. So anytime we do a review or something has happened that necessitates us to review our policies, I push that to the chief flight instructor. I tell him to pulse the staff, get their feedback, and then he will you know, compile their feedback and give it back to me. And then I'll weigh in as the owner. You know, it's it sounds like you're the owner, you make all the decisions, but I try to push it out to the lowest level possible because they're the ones out there doing this every single day, right? As far as that goes for maintenance, you know, I'm an ANPIA on my own staff in, in, the, in the flight school. I've got a separate ANPIA who's actually our director of maintenance. He makes the final call. Because again, I don't want the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want the, um, the appearance, right, that as the owner, I'm like, nope, get it in the air, right? If there's an actual airworthiness issue, he has the final call. And I've never overruled him, you know, on anything like that. So, uh, so we've made a lot of purposeful decisions along those lines to make sure everyone at the lowest level has that input, and then we incorporate those requests or those changes where possible into how we operate the school. All right, let's talk about insurance. So you're going to need, as a flight school operation, you're going to need commercial insurance. Okay, it's a commercial activity. Uh, that policy is going to cover, you know, your aircraft, your staff, and your premises. The rates are based on the type of activity. So the rates for the instruction activity are different versus the policies that cover like our maintenance hangar and the, the activity that, that goes on there. Uh, also based on the whole value, whole value of the aircraft and loss history. And it's just more expensive. It's a commercial policy versus a you know, private policy that you would get as an individual owner. Now, if you're a one person CFI flight school, part 61 school, if you're instructing in your own plane or if you only intend to provide instruction in owner-provided aircraft, there are policies out there for that that are not as expensive as these larger, you know, overarching, you know, commercial policies. But it's still something you're going to want to look into to protect yourself should anything happen. We require renter's insurance. Renter's insurance, you know, covers uh, these incidents due to, you know, renter or student uh, negligence. 
You can determine for yourself what coverage levels to enforce. You know, a lot of schools that are out there, I've talked to many of them, they require renter's insurance, but they only require the $1,000, like the minimum you know, policy level, to cover their insurance deductible in case of a claim. Well, that claim is still going on the school's insurance policy, and depending on how that policy is set up, their insurance may turn around and subrogate against that renter or student, right? If the student turns around, they had an accident, it happens, it's a training environment. Let's say they prop strike an airplane, 30 grand later, you've got a rebuilt engine, repaired airframe, you know, whatever the, the ultimate damage was. If they turn around and the insurance company turns around to sue them for that you know, $29,000 know, that, that the 1,000 deductible didn't cover, that's gonna be a bad experience for them, right? So we require the renter's insurance. Our insurance company um, enforces that as well. This has actually worked in our favor multiple times because things do happen. All right, let's move on here. So location, <clears throat> kind of hinted around this as well. So does your local airport already have a school? Are you going to be competing with someone? So I opened and started competing directly against the school I just graduated from, uh, it, and it worked out. So the thing to hear though is how will you be different or competitive? So you know, the, the guy I learned to fly with, you know, very old Skyhawks, very minimally maintained, uh, you know, ramp eyesores if you will, so we bought a Diamond DA-20 just to be as polar opposite as we possibly could be you know, out on the ramp and give uh, the patrons of VKX something different to fly. Um, you know, if they don't already have one, you know, or even if they do, you know, work with airport ownership or management to strike some type of deal or agreement to get you in there. So for us, um, we negotiated space. When we eventually expanded space to take over like the main pilot shop in the lobby building there, uh, we worked out deferred rent so we could actually get it fully renovated, you know, looking new, that kind of thing. So everything's open for negotiation. Definitely have those conversations, get to know those folks, and build those relationships because those relationships are going to help you, you know, throughout your time as, as a business owner. Are you going to relocate to open a school? Maybe there's not enough actual just business, you know, where you're currently located to support a flight training operation like this. So are you going to relocate somewhere where there is enough foot traffic, you know, pilot density, whatever it is, um, to have people coming through the door uh, to help you build a successful business? We've talked about geography. So, you know, coastal issues, mountains, seasonal weather, all of that plays a factor into this. We're dead right in the middle of the mid-Atlantic. You know, we normally have, you know, mild winters, you know, several inches of snow, blah, 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 blah. Um, so we'll face a few days of winter, you know, of shutdown. We'll get some snow. The airport owner doesn't plow the runway. It's only 2,600 feet long. It normally melts within three days, you know, that kind of thing. So we'll be shut down for a little while. This spring, for whatever reason, we had some of the nastiest winds as fronts moved, you know, back and forth for like six weeks nonstop. We were shut down quite a bit. So it just depends on, you know, where you're located and what those types of uh, seasonal issues, you know, will have on your particular business. Excuse me for one moment. <clears throat> Camp Scholar is like a dust bowl this year, so the dust has definitely gotten to me. Uh, let's talk about other staff. So are you going to need office staff? Like if it's just you, you're an independent CFI, you probably don't. But if you're going in, you know, from the beginning, formal flight school, office space, you want someone there to answer phones, you know, whatever the case may be, who will do that for you? My wife quit her full-time job to, to ultimately come run the flight school for us. So she handles all the day-to-day. -day. She's there, she's dealing with scheduling issues, people calling in, what have you. We've gotten so busy over the last two years, especially with the hiring frenzy going on with the airlines, that we actually have remote admin people now supporting her as well. It got to the point where the phone just would ring nonstop for a you know, variety of different questions all the time, she couldn't get her actual you know, GT work done. So we farmed some of that out. <coughs> we also use uh, some of our customers. We've got younger folks that are in high school, uh, some in college. They come in, they work weekends for us. You know, they know our system because they're flying with us, right? So they know how to answer those questions. They know the rates. They know how we conduct business. Um, so they make uh, you know, for, for good administrative help as well. Do you need an accountant? Right? There's money involved, so if you're a do-your-own-taxes kind of person, fine, but maybe you want to consider at least some outside you know, uh, financial or tax advice as you're getting this thing off the ground and, of course, you know, as you go. And then, of course, you know, who's going to be the chief cat herder? 
because you're going to grow to a level of activity at some point where it's nonstop all the time, particularly in today's environment. Just this past week, my wife has been texted at 7.15 in the morning. I've been texted at 11.30 at night. Like it's, you, you can never unplug once you get to a certain level of activity. So we do try to get our customers to understand you know, some boundaries, um, but we've also made a decision. In the one case, it was someone who was stranded. You know, they, they landed somewhere, couldn't get the aircraft started. There's no services. We're not going to leave them you know, at another remote airport and tell them to figure it out. So we've done all of those things. Like I've driven four hours round trip you know, to go pick somebody up and then flown back the next day to fix the airplane. Uh, just all depends on what's going on. All right. So FAA, you know, 141 and VA stuff. So if you want to be a Part 61 flight school, there's very little FAA involvement, right? The regs are clear. You know what you have to teach. You know what requirements that candidate has to meet in order to go to a check ride. You can basically do it, you know, for a lack of a better term, you know, however you want, as long as they meet the requirements. Part 141 is a bit different than that. So there's a lot of FAA involvement. So you're going to reach out to your local FISDO, let them know you want to become a 141 flight school, and they're going to send you some paperwork. There's a shocker, FAA and paperwork. So you're going to fill out some forms. Here's what we want to teach. These are the courses we want to teach. These are the syllabi we're going to use. Here's the aircraft we're using. Here's the airport we're going to locate this at. Here's the classroom facilities that we're going to use to do this. It is in detail. It's a lot of information. All that has to be uh, placed into what are called training course outlines or TCOs. You write one of those for every course of instruction. Private, instrument, commercial, multi-commercial, whatever it is, you're going to have a document for each one of those. You're going to go through an initial inspection from the FISO. They're going to come out, check out your space, go through all your documentation with you, make sure you're doing all the things that you said on paper you were going to be able to do. And then they're going to, they're going to issue what's called an initial certificate, initial 141 certificate. You then have two years, 24 months, to graduate 10 different people from any combination of the TCOs that they approved. All right? If you don't graduate a minimum of 10 people in that first two years, they don't renew you. They put you on a six-month you know, hold, basically, and then at the end of that six months, you can reapply for another provisional certificate, initial certificate. If you do meet that graduation requirement, then you go on a normal certificate at that point, and then you just do your annual reporting and your uh, biannual renewals with the FISDO to keep that certificate active. There are initial and recurring inspections. They're going to come out, you know, minimum, at least for us, it's minimum twice a year, sometimes three or four times a year. They want to see your paperwork. Are you keeping all the records you're supposed to keep? Are all your training records being kept up to date? If they're in a 141 program, I mean, up to the last lesson that they took, there better be notes on a training document somewhere. We use King Schools, uh, the Cessna uh, curriculum, CTA, their online portal, everything's tracked electronically in there. So I actually just gave the FISDO a read-only login so they can log in whenever they want and just see how everybody's doing, and that seems to have satisfied them uh, for now. You're going to have to find a chief flight instructor. Now, 141 has a, you know, specific requirements for both chief and assistant chief flight instructors for your school. In this environment, you know, unless you find that person who is retired, they've been teaching for a while, they're just looking for that part-time gig to keep their head in it and do some flying, that's the ideal candidate, right? But maybe you find them, maybe you don't. If you're doing this for yourself as a business, maybe you meet those quals and you can be the chief of your own school. That's really the preferred result because then you don't do what I have to do and I'm normally trying to hire a new chief every year to two years due to turnover, right? So finding someone that has those quals is of paramount importance. And then the last bullet, you know, based on all these other comments is, of course, it's just a higher administrative burden, right? It's more paperwork up front. It's more paperwork that's ongoing. You got the FAA coming out to pay you a visit every now and then. Most of those guys are cool. Some of them aren't. Yes, I said it. Um, it just depends on, you know, on what it is. All right, any questions about this? All right, so the VA on top of that, you... So the Veterans Administration will allow vets to use their GI Bill for vocational training. Flight instruction qualifies as vocational training. In order for you to become a VA-approved flight school, you have to first be a 141-approved flight school. So they're only going to approve use of GI Bill benefits 
at 141 schools because of the structure involved. They know you have an actual you know, published curriculum you're going to use. There are graduation requirements, all of those things. So you, it's one step you know, before the other. You're going to apply to your normal, you apply to your state approving agency, uh, you know, along with your 141 documentation to say, you know, we want approval to, to accept GI Bill benefits, and then that's another entire administrative process with that agency where you're filling out paperwork, they come out to inspect you, inspect your aircraft, and then you pop out the other end of it, and now you're a VA approved school as well. So we talked about marketing. So how are you going to get the word out about this new school of yours? How are you going to differentiate yourself from another competing school, maybe at the same airport? At our airport, there's two schools. There's us, and there's Columbia Training Center. Um, neither one of us advertise. We've got enough foot traffic and just you know organic growth just due to our proximity to DC. Google results are good, you know, all that type of stuff. That neither one of us really advertise much. There are other airports in the D.C. area where there's five flight schools on one airport, right? So what are you going to do to differentiate yourself and market to get the word out? You know, consider having a website. Certainly leverage social media. You know, we make Facebook heroes out of all of our solos, all of our checkride, you know, completions, all of that stuff. Um, are you going to use local print or electronic advertising? You know, pluses and minuses to each of those. Uh, a lot of folks still, you know, open house is always a good thing. You know, cookouts just... We, when, when we do these things, we try to do them once or twice a year. We've been so busy. Frankly, we, we were very lax in this uh, this past year. Um, but invite everybody. Our airport is actually in the back of a neighborhood, so that's awesome. Like, the neighbors really love all the aircraft noise. Um, so we put the notice out and just, you know, come on down. Meet the folks at the airport, you know, and, uh, and open it up to them. Are you going to conduct seminars? You know, a lot of schools will do this as well. Uh, rusty pilot seminars, things like that, just to get more people, you know, coming in your doors to become aware of you and the services you have to offer. And then, of course, you know, there are places like Oshkosh, of course, but you know, there are other you know business events in your local area where you could set up a small booth and begin to advertise your uh, your services and products within your community to help raise that awareness. All right, so here's the big one, money. So what's the best way to make a little money in aviation? Start with a lot, right? So uh, it's a joke. A lot of people talk about it. It's, it can happen to you if you're not careful. So my only advice in this is, again, it's going to depend on how you approach starting a flight school, you know, for your specific circumstances. Um, we did this with some of our own money that we saved. We made a promise to ourselves, you know, it's going to pay for itself from day one or we're going to pull the plug. Like, we weren't going to risk our retirements. We weren't going to risk our 401ks, whatever. Um, some folks will go out and they'll, they'll find a lender to, you know, to, to underwrite, you know, a loan for, you know, an initial business loan, whatever that might be. Whatever works best for you, you have to make that decision for yourself. What I have found, though, particularly in the early years, controlling your expenses is as critical, if not more important, than you know all the other stuff you're going to be spending money on you know that first year, even the marketing stuff to get the word out. Um, I talk to new business owners, not just in aviation. Uh, you know, through my other, I'm a, I also run a, a full-time uh, cybersecurity company, as a federal contracting uh, company. Talk to folks all the time. And they go to trade shows and they've got the biggest booths and everybody's got shirts with logos or whatever and they're losing money, right? And it's like, I know you gotta get the word out, but how much money are you spending on this other stuff that could be going to more operationally critical things? So there's, there's always a balance to be had there, but like I said, it, you know, my advice is to try to control your expenses uh, to the extent that you can. Other things to consider, you know, what type of business entity will you be? If you're just an individual, you have some options. You, know, you can certainly do it as yourself, but you're exposing yourself to individual liability. You could do things uh, like you know, start a limited liability corporation, an SSC, an LLC rather, or you can go all the way as far as uh, starting an S corp as well. You know things, things about LLCs, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, anything like that. Just you know, things we ran into as we were doing this. Um, you know, LLCs are great, but you have to do it right. You know, you, there's you have to keep your money separate. You can't co-mingle stuff. Uh, as soon as you do that, the one time you do it, you lose the advantages of that corporate veil. And then if something were to happen and you get sued, they can still come after your personal assets. So, again, you're going to want to talk to talk to some experts, get their advice, figure out what solution works best for you. All right, quick guess. What is that? What's flying? T6. There we go. All right. Trade names or doing business as, you know, you may have, in, in our case, we already had an LLC registered with the state for some consulting work I was doing. And uh, so we just filed a DBA trade name 
off of that existing LLC. So I didn't have to start from scratch, set up something new. Um, these days, uh, it's super easy to, to start the entity, the legal entity. You can go online, submit all the paperwork, pay the fees. They'll file it all electronically for you. You can have an LLC, at least, up and running in 24 hours, 48 hours max, if that's the route you, know, you ultimately want to go. Um, again, advice here at the end. Uh, you know, certainly consult a lawyer uh, if you know one or hire, you know, hire one to get that advice. Talk to an accountant. And then uh, I just mentioned you, know, you can use online filing services to help you set up your business entity. All right. So you've made your decision. Now you need to own it, right? Look at this clown right here. He had no idea what he was getting himself into you know, 12 years ago. So that's me thinking I had the entire world figured out the day we opened back in uh, 2009. So we had that airplane our one part-time CFI, and everybody looking at me like I was nuts. It was 2009, middle of a recession, we're in the worst airspace in the United States for doing this kind of stuff. And like I said, don't tell me no, because I'll figure out a way to do it. So despite being such a small business entity, I'm the president of the company. My best friend, Matt, who was doing our maintenance for us, he's my director of maintenance, right? Uh, my daughter, who was a high school senior at the time, she was the office manager. So when people call it in, that's who they're talking to. That's who they're interacting with, right? Um, fast forward to last year, you know, we're up to 10 aircraft. Like I said, we're picking up another one next week. We've got the SIM as well, 15 CFIs. We delivered just under 5,000 uh, hours last year of flight time. Uh, little, this is 2021. Um, just under, uh, you know, or right at 5,700, 5,800 uh, hours of instruction, 200 hours in the SIM. Completed 27 check rides in 2021. This is a one location flight school that is essentially just a small mom and pop business when you when you boil down to it, right? So, and my last bullet here, I don't you know, me personally, I don't care if you have one person, 10 people, 100 people in your company, you act like you're a major corporation, right? So, you call and you establish these relationships with your vendors. They don't know who you are, so act like a company, you know, and uh, and leverage those relationships. Uh, I could get into the whole, you know finding parts vendors and getting those accounts set up so now you've got wholesale you know parts on prices and you're not paying commercial anymore all of those types of things all right so my advice you got to have fun that was the second promise we made to ourselves after the one about not losing money okay so if this becomes not fun you're not going to enjoy doing it and the company itself is going to suffer all right so you may get to the point where you need to figure out, do you hire someone to take over most of your day-to-day -day duties to get some of this stuff off your plate? It's part of the issue we're going through right now, frankly. So, uh, so have some fun. Start small. You don't have to be everything to everybody right out of the gate, right? Figure out what, how you want to start and the goals you want to achieve and start there and then piecemeal and add the other services or other products as you go. Grow as needed. I just said, don't try to be everything to everyone. So we are now, you know, we've got the planes and the sim. We're also a PSI, you know, testing center. So our students can take their written exams on site. We didn't add that until about six years ago. I said, you know, we're 12 years old. Uh, I just got tired of hearing our customers talk about having to drive an hour or more in any given direction to get to the next nearest testing center to take their exam when they were ready. So, you know, we wanted the ability, you know, if they're doing ground in the back and reviewing with a CFI and the CFI is like, yep, you're ready for your exam, go knock it out. If they wanted to, they could walk in the next room and do that. Doesn't quite work that way today because you can't, you can't register same day anymore. But, uh, but that, that was the initial uh, decision that we made. So we do that on site now as well. I mentioned this earlier, you know, spend as much time controlling your expenses as you do trying to increase revenue. And then, of course, have fun. At the end of the day, this is what's important, right? These are all graduates of ours. The uh, crew photo here in the middle, that's Juan Barco on the right. He's our former chief pilot. He's now, uh, that's a picture at Republic. He has since moved on from Republic since they took this photo. He's now first officer at Spirit. Um, and on the left there is Mariah Ronaldo. She's one of our office admins who made a decision to join the airlines as a flight attendant as well. So seeing folks, you know, work through, you know, our organization and pursue their their career goals uh, is certainly rewarding you know, to us as well. This is my contact info here. I do a few business cards with me as well. Uh, any final questions? Yes. What do you do about ground school? Question is, what do you do about ground school? So we use the King School system. 
So it's an online delivered ground school. They can do it anywhere they want at their own time. They have the option of sitting in a room you know, with a CFI to go through ground if that's their preferred you know, method of learning. We try to adapt it to everyone's learning style, but we start from there. And if they need additional help, we supplement you know, the online coursework with in-person you know, support. The question is, how have we integrated the SIM into it? Uh, 141 specifically on the instrument side, you can use the SIM for, it's just under half of the total curriculum, so it works really well for that. Uh, and then, you know, if someone's just not getting something in the airplane, we don't want them to keep paying, you know, wet dual rates, you know, to, to keep making the same mistakes over and over in the sky. So we'll just put them in the box, let them sort it out in there. Even if it's just as simple as reading the checklist and just looking to see where everything is, uh, you know, for our newer students, it just it really helps them control their expenses and helps us, you know, help them get over that initial hump and then get back in the airplane. Other questions? A gross profit benchmark for training, like as much as possible, right? So um, when you look throughout the industry, people throw around a bunch of different numbers. You know, uh, I've, I've heard some schools say if they hit 5%, you know, they're, they're happy, 10%, whatever. We're well north of 10%, you know, to be honest. Um, but it's, it's through a lot of hard work. You know, like I said, we, we do a ton of work controlling our expenses day after day, right, to help keep that profitability up. Um, but then, of course, also trying to make sure we're paying our people well and, and keep you know, those customers coming through the door. So a lot of it is minimizing downtime on aircraft, frankly. The more the aircraft are up and available, the more people are going to fly them. I think I had one hand over here. Yep. So I like the idea of the niche uh, to stand out like you started. Yep. Um, I'm actually looking at potentially a light sport tail dragger. But my question is, obviously, you went away from the, from the diamond. Was that a good experience? Obviously, you, you went to the vanilla Landomatics. Yep. Um, probably from a business standpoint. Do you still have the diamond, or do you? We don't. I, I guess how that experience work out? I guess. Yep. So it initially, it was great, right? It was again, it was the differentiator we wanted to get the school off the ground, but it was one aircraft, and it was all we could afford at the time. So a student would break it, and then our one aircraft was offline for X period of time, and no one else could fly it, right? Ultimately, what ended up happening that that forced our decision back into Skyhawks was we had a renter who graduated with us take the aircraft, you know, out to Ocean City one evening. Killed the battery. If anybody here ever flown a DA-20, it's got a motorcycle battery in it. You give three chances to start the aircraft or it's dead. Everybody know that? So killed the battery, called us because he's stranded now, right? So we, we walked him through. We kept the jump plug in the plane for that reason. So we walked him through the checklist, how to do it. Told him to call his cab to come back to jump start the aircraft. Well, they didn't do that. They found a golf cart at the FBO. So they plugged a 48-volt golf cart into a 12-volt aircraft and fried everything in it, right? So now my one aircraft is, is down hard, and ultimately we got everything fixed in about two weeks, minus the oil pressure gauge, which we could not get from Diamond for two months, right? And it's a, it's a certified aircraft. It's got to be that part. So, um, so that's when we made a decision, like, this isn't going to be, this, this isn't a tenable situation for us. We couldn't afford a second DA-20, that kind of thing. So I actually moved it to a Diamond Flight Center. I put it on lease back there as the owner. You know, we started with two Skyhawks and just kept adding, you know, more aircraft. And it just proved to be the right decision for us. You know, I can get whatever parts I need for a Skyhawk from anybody. You know, very little waiting times you know, prior to today's environment, at least. And uh, yeah, yep, exactly. So yeah, so that's that's ultimately what we what we did. The the plane is the plane was ended up being totaled at the Diamond Flight Center, unfortunately. But uh, take that story full circle. So you had one over here, this guy. Initial goals, what? Yeah, so it's, I can't, under, I can't understate like how bad my experience was from a customer perspective at the previous flight school. So our goal literally was just to, to provide flight training and just focus on the student and getting them to the finish line, right? So we just started there, it was, it was that simple. And then once we had that first year or so underneath our belt, and, and sort of grew into a comfort level, right? Providing flight instruction. Again, I'm not a flight instructor, had no aviation experience. I've done all kinds of federal contracting work and all that stuff. But uh, 
We wanted to get sort of over that initial hump. You know, would we make it through the first year where many businesses fail? You know, that kind of thing. And then from there, we sat down and said, okay, now what do we do from here? So within that second year, that's when we had the incident with the DA-20. So we, you know, we changed the fleet up a little bit. Um, and from that point on, it was like, yep, we want to be 141. That will invite other, a wider customer base. There's five military bases within, you know, 30, 45 minutes of our airport. So the GI Bill aspect of that is certainly appealing. Um, so we made those decisions in time, you know, and just added those things one at a time over the course of the next few years. Yep. So my question is around uh, flight instructor compensation. Okay. You were saying that it's local or regional in terms of compensation um, pay. Yep. But did you differentiate between your full-time instructors, the ones that were really working toward the hours to go to the airlines, versus the your contract instructors that were that were didn't necessarily have a career path that would fit 121. So did you I, have a did you have a way of differentiating that pay compensation? Yeah, we we differentiate pay based on the experience they're bringing to the table, right? So we're going to start a brand new CFI at a lower hourly rate than someone who walks in the door with several thousand hours, certainly several several thousand hours of dual given, uh, and can meet other needs of the school, right? So like our chief pilot is going to make more than an entry-level CFI just coming you know, off of a check ride, you know, looking for their first flight instructing gig. Um, that said, that's not a very wide band, at least at our school, um, but we do move them you know, throughout that band as they earn additional ratings and, or take on additional responsibilities, whatever the case may be. Okay, last question here. Uh, hi. Um, time builders. Uh, we fly a lot, but we want it as cheap as possible. Is yep. it a good clients for you? Is it a good clients for a flight school? Huh? Client, client. I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Plane? Line? Like biz Flights. Well, client, the time builders as yeah. a client. Oh, as a client. Okay, sorry. Um, we do. We have, we have plenty of those as well. Um, and even, I mean, our flight instructors are, are doing that as well, right? So they're doing a lot of that through dual, you know, but uh, they're also building time, you know, and other means as well. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, you have to figure out, to meet your customer base's expectations, right? A, pri a student pilot's going to have different needs than a time builder, than someone who you know is going to try to go, you know, to an airline or something like that. And we grew our fleet to a, a suitable size to give us the flexibility to do that. So, you know, a lot of places, they'll charge a, a minimum, for, like if you want to take an aircraft overnight, you know, they may want a four or five hour minimum because you're taking that aircraft offline, right? We only charge a two hour Hobbs minimum per 24 hours. You know, very reasonable because we want people to use the aircraft and we want them out using their certificate once they graduate. So that's just, th those are decisions we have made. And uh, yeah, to me, if you want to come in and rent an airplane and time build, that's no different to me. You know, those are your goals. So we're going to provide a service to help you meet that goal.